grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and from the Christ, who is Jesus. Amen. It's good to be back. Good to be back here with you today. For those of you uh, who, who know or those of you who don't know, uh, my wife and I in the last couple weeks had uh, our second child. And my firstborn son, his name is William Jude and Molly, uh, yeah, you probably don't want me to point at you, but he's over there. He's in that side of the church. If you want to flock there after, no, don't do that. But take your time and get to meet William. He's a great guy. And so I've been away, I've been away for a bit, uh, uh, but it's good to be back. And, and parents or any of you who have been around childbirth, you know uh, just what a miracle it really is. What a miracle it is to see new life come into the world, these tiny little beings making their way. And while it's a miracle and kind of an amazing thing, at the same time, you also know that, well, there's some suffering involved, right? There's some pain and some difficulty and and challenges. Uh, It turns out infants, I I should know this because it's my second kid, but infants are nocturnal uh, creatures. Uh, so Molly and I are fighting off sleep deprivation. And then there's the diaper dramas too, right? Uh, which are much more uh, entertaining now. I, I didn't realize how easy I had it with uh, just a girl, you know, just with Lily the first time. But now there's a new sheriff town, uh, and he's pretty quick on the draw, right? We'll just leave it at that. But you know that even amid this little bit of suffering, it's worth it. It's worth it. The pain (laughs) is worth it. The suffering is worth what it produces. Uh, We're okay, Molly and I, giving up. Well, maybe we're not okay, but we're dealing with giving up these freedoms that we used to enjoy having only one child, uh, sacrificing them uh, for the sake of this newborn baby, because he's worth it. And I think that's kind of a pattern that's woven into just the way life is, right? That, that things that require some suffering and some pain, when they produce their end result, they are worth it. They're worth it. Like working out, for instance, right? We often don't want to work out. And my uh, membership over the SDC conveniently expired over the last two weeks. So that was good timing. Uh, But when we go and when we put in the the pain and the effort, it's worth it, right? When you sacrifice that free time, you could spend doing literally anything else, but but use it to go work out. Well, in time, it proves it's worth, right? You feel better. Maybe you sleep better. Your your body just feels good. I know for myself, I, I tend to think more clearly when I work out. I don't like to work out but it is worth it. Maybe you've experienced this within a relationship. Maybe it's part of your, your love story. You know, every relationship goes through times of struggle and difficulty, uh, seasons where a life together is like butting heads because, in essence, love in relationships, it's sacrifice. And suffering, right? You have to give up things. You have to give up certain selfish pieces you'd like to hang on to for the sake of the other, for the sake of the relationship. 
But as you push through those hard seasons, and as you grapple with that reality of loss for the sake of your, your love, over time you come to, to realize and experience what you've been telling yourself the whole time, right? It's worth it. It's worth it. Well, this is the same thing that the apostles are saying to themselves in our chapter this week from the story. Uh, the apostles, these ones commissioned and sent out by Jesus to go uh, preach and teach and spread the news to the entire world, they're saying it's worth it. This life that they've chosen to follow Jesus and, and everything it brings, including the suffering and the persecution, the humiliation and, and the beatings, they say it's worth it. And we know it's a historical fact that the Christian church was persecuted severely, especially in its origin. There was a time of about 300 years where 10 different systematic oppressions by the Roman Empire came down upon the Christian church. This small band of, of followers of one guy, and they, they, were, they were persecuted, they were beaten, they were humiliated. For 100 years of that time, it was illegal completely to be a Christian. But those who were even martyred for their faith, they left viewers speechless because they were martyred praying on behalf of those who were persecuting them. They were martyred singing songs as they went to their death because this life that they had found was worth it. And the Christian church exploded. So much so that uh, third century uh, church father, Tertullian, would say the blood of the martyrs or the blood of the Christians is the seed of the church. And it was through their blood that this church grew and grew. The more they were persecuted, the more they spread out. Our text today gives us a glimpse into one of these episodes, a historical account of a time when the church in its early days was persecuted. And what I really want to look at is the three different reactions the apostles show us in this quick story. Uh, the first one comes early on in the text. Uh, the apostles, apparently all 12 of them, have been arrested by the Sadducees, and they're put in a public jail. And that was no doubt a move intentional on behalf of the Sadducees to try and uh, expose the Christians to shame and disgrace among the people trying to dissuade others from following them. But then during the night, an angel appears, rescues them and says, okay, go back to that place where you were just arrested and keep doing that thing that got you arrested, right? Go preach and teach again in the temple courts. You might think they would scratch their heads, maybe take that, uh, uh, you know, piece of advice and consult some others. But no, they go right back right back, daybreak, the next day. And you see what this shows us. It shows us that this, this effort to humiliate the apostles, it doesn't work. It's to no effect. Because the apostles were compelled, uh, the text says, to speak the words of this life. The words of this life. That's an interesting way to talk about the gospel. But you've got to realize these apostles, like Aaron said earlier, they were normal men. 
and they had had lives prior to Jesus. Many of the disciples of Jesus held fine jobs, good-paying jobs. They would have had respect in the community. But there was something lacking. There was a discontent always haunting them in their life. A feeling like there was something more out there. There just had to be something more. And then they met him. Follow me, Jesus said. And they watched Jesus speak with power and heal and teach, and and, and they, they stuck with him. They stuck with Jesus in his life, even when things got hard during Jesus' life, when when the crowds dispersed after a hard teaching of Jesus. But Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The disciples were convinced there was something in this way of life, something in following Jesus that nothing else could give them. So, give up now because of some humiliating attempts? Not a chance. Second reaction comes when they're found again and brought back into the council. And they're put before these leaders whose mouths are dripping with violence. The Sanhedrin is looking for any chance they can to, to kill and put a stop to this movement. And so they're standing before uh, people who want to see their lives end, telling them, again, we, we charged you not to go and preach of this man. And what does Peter say? We must obey God rather than men. Keep in mind, these are ordinary men. Extraordinary confidence, but ordinary people. And the book of Acts makes that abundantly clear just a chapter before, uh, the first time when Peter and John were captured. It says that they were astonished, the church leaders were, because they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. How could they have this confidence? Because they knew this life. They knew the one who called himself the way, the truth, and the life. They knew Jesus, and they had seen God exalt him. These men had seen God rise Jesus, raise him from the dead, and place him at the right hand of God as Savior and leader. Another kind of unusual, peculiar phrasing for a name of Jesus. That's the Greek word archegos, literally arch-ego right? Someone who has the most self-confidence, kind of like a hero or a champion. In fact, first century readers who were reading uh, Luke's account here, when they hear that word archagos, to their minds it would call attention to uh, a near uh, eastern practice in warfare where when you had two militaries, each military would send out the greatest of their fighters, their champion in conflict against the other, kind of like David and Goliath, or if you saw the movie Troy, right? And whoever won that battle, if the other sides kept their honor, the loser would surrender. The war would be over. Those were the champions, the archegos, who were sent out into battle. And these guys see Jesus as that archegos, that hero, 
sent out into battle, waging against the largest enemies, the greatest enemies of sin, death, and the devil, and returning alive, victorious, resurrected from the dead. And they knew that Jesus had brought with him forgiveness of all of their sins. So they didn't need to stand on trial here. They didn't need to worry about this trial. A trial that mattered between them and God. They knew they were acquitted of their crimes. And so they mimic the confidence of Jesus. But it's the final reaction to me that really blows me away. This comes after they're released by the Sanhedrin. They're let off with another warning, some empty threats. Well, not quite so empty. They are beaten. Beaten by the Sanhedrin. Probably the 40 lashes, less one. And yet, what did the text say? Did it say that they were bemoaning this life they had chosen following Jesus? Were they frustrated by how hard it was or the sacrifice that they had to, had to make by following him? No, it says that they were rejoicing. They were rejoicing and not at the future hope of something that would happen at the end of time. They weren't imagining a heaven distant and far off, but one that was present and real for them today in Christ. They had already experienced heaven by knowing Jesus in this life. They see the worth of their faith already resurrected. It's a sure thing. And so they have great joy. Even in the midst of suffering, they can rejoice. Do you see the adventure that this life with Jesus is? These apostles have such a, a reckless abandon in their life and so much joy, and it comes through surrender and even at times suffering. They surrender to the words of Jesus who had promised earlier in his ministry, you will be beaten in the synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake and, and you will bear witness before them. But don't worry, I'm going to send you my spirit and you'll know the words to say when the time comes. They <clears throat> surrender themselves to the angel who <laughs> releases them from prison and sends them right back into the fray. They surrender even to their rivals, going uh, with the captain of the guard and with the soldiers, not because they had to, because they were willing to, because they knew who was with them. They knew that this life following Jesus was worth it. So how about you? Have you tasted the worth of this life? Do you know this reality of, of the Spirit of God coming down from heaven and dwelling in you today? By Jesus, His promise and His power, He has sent the Holy Spirit to, to rise up in us and animate us and help us to live with the same kind of abandon in our life, knowing that we can have the same confidence and same courage. But how? Or maybe, what's in the way? What's in the way of us in Jesus? What is it in our life that, that maybe we need to surrender, that's been blocking our view of Jesus? 
Sometimes we need to surrender this feeling of, of self-validation, that we have to prove ourselves to the world through our work or, or maybe some skill that we have, and we, we, we know that we have, uh, we're good at it, and we want to prove ourselves almost to the world as if we're on trial. Maybe we need to surrender that to Jesus. Or maybe we need to, to surrender our attempts to try and fix everything, thinking that it's up to us, that everything's on our shoulders to make things right. Surrender that to God. Lift it up to Him in prayer. Sometimes the thing that's between us and Jesus is just our, our nature. The old Adam, rooted deep within us. That's always by nature in opposition to God. That's its default state. And its natural response to surrender is to put up its guard, to refuse to acknowledge its own need for forgiveness, afraid that if it, if it opens up even that little bit, that, that it's going to crack and explode and, and crumble and fall apart, not realizing the glory that will be breaking through. And so it gets standoffish and defensive, and in our relationships and in our life, it, it says, I'm right, and I don't need to change, and the problems that I'm dealing with, they're not my fault, they're someone else's fault, and they shift blame. Kind of like the high priest in the story. This was the same guy who would put Jesus on trial who had captured Jesus in the dead of night, in the secrecy of the shadows, knowing perfectly well what he was doing. And this high priest watched as the Son of God was struck by officers who laughed and mocked him. And he sent this Jesus up the bureaucratic chain of command to his death, that Jesus' blood would be spilled. And yet he says, you, you apostles, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. It's not my fault. You're to blame. But you know, the high priest, if we're honest, he's not the only one to blame. There's that old hymn. I think we used to sing it on Good Friday a lot. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And the reality is, we all were. We all were. As another hymn puts it, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. It was my sin that got Jesus' blood spilled. But you know what? It was worth it. It was worth it to Jesus. Jesus was willing to suffer and to surrender his life for us. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author or archagos, the hero, the champion and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. But think about this. What joy does Jesus not have? He's been up in heaven for eternity with the Father and the Spirit, enjoying divine love for all time. What didn't he have up there that he could have down here? 
us. You. You are the joy. You were what was worth it for Jesus to lay down his life of his own accord. As he said in John 10, I lay it down of my own accord and I take it up again. No one takes it from me. For Jesus, it was worth it. The cross, the pain, the shame, it was all worth it for you, for the joy. Do you know this joy in your life? Do you know this reckless abandon that God has for His own life for you? If not, what's blocking your view? What's getting in the way between you and Jesus? Surrender it and begin to taste the joy that the apostles knew. Experience their adventure, and I promise you, it will be worth it. In Jesus' name, amen.